0: morning in November. You can almost feel Christmas around the corner. It's kind of weird. For those of you who don't know me or haven't met me yet, I am Jim Oakley. I was formerly the youth pastor at Hope Evangelical Free Church in Roscoe, Illinois, and uh, now I am on the search and attending here. I've been here for the last couple months, and you guys don't know how blessed you are to have this awesome church and have an awesome pastor like Pastor Adam. Such a good guy, and it's such a blessing to be able to be here. Hey, before we begin, would you join me in a word of prayer? Lord, Heavenly Father, will you open our hearts and our minds today? Remind us of who you are, that you are our great Savior who loves us and has rescued us. And remind us of whose we are, that we belong to you that you ransomed us and bought us from slavery to sin. God, will you challenge us today with your word? And will you speak clearly through your servant today? Thank you, Jesus, for this time. Be honored and be glorified in it. We pray in the precious name of Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Hey, if you have your Bibles or devices with you, uh, please turn to Ephesians chapter 4. We're looking in verse 17 through 24. That's Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 24. And uh, I'll be reading out of the English Standard Version. Uh, So if it sounds a little bit different from yours, that's okay. It's still the same Word of God picking up in verse 17 of chapter 4 it says now this i say and testify in the lord that you must no longer walk as the gentiles do in the futility of their minds they are darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of god because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Before we really dive into all that that passage has for us this morning, I want you to think back and try to remember, if you can, when you were in junior high. Do you remember it? Do you remember the different styles that you tested out trying to figure out where you fit in, how you fit in, and maybe it was different styles of music or different styles of dress or hairstyles. I remember very clearly in junior high, the coolest thing in our school was to be a skater. And so you wanted to dress like a skater, even if you had little to no skating skills, which was me. Uh, And yet, uh, in my very small rebellion, um, I grew my hair down long in front of my eyes and had, for some reason, a wall of spikes on the side of my head. I don't know what inspired me of that, but I am very glad that I don't do that anymore, that I grew out of that. It was my little rebellion because my mother wouldn't let me get the baggy pants and the long shirts that all the other skater kids were wearing, so that was my tiny little rebellion. But do you remember what you did? Man, having been a youth pastor for 15 years, I have seen kids go through the phases. I've seen the blue hair phase, the hipster phase, the gangster phase, uh, the rock star phase. Every phase that you can think of, I've seen kids go through it trying to find their identity. And that is one of the key times in our human development that we are searching that out, trying to figure out, who am I? What am I here for? Who do I identify with? Where do I belong? And Paul, in Ephesians, and as we've been studying, has been laying out different aspects of our identity because it's clear that our identity in Christ is the most important part of who we are. In fact, think about that today, how much our identity in Christ matters, above and beyond our economic identity, our ethnic identity, our sexual identity, above and beyond our economic class, above and beyond everything else, what should identify us above all is who we are in Christ, who God says that we are, and so far in Ephesians, we've looked at several different identities. We've looked at the fact that we've been called holy saints. For some of us, that's hard for us to wrap our minds around. Either we grew up in the Catholic Church and when we hear saints, we don't understand it. We, we think of really, really holy people who are above and beyond us in our, in our level of spirituality. We've also heard of the fact that we are God's workmanship. Essentially, his masterpiece created in Christ Jesus to do good works that he prepared in advance for us to do. We've heard that we're no longer aliens or strangers, but we are now God's adopted children. We're part of a family. We're part of a bigger body of Christ. And last week we heard that we've been given these gifts to bless and edify and build up the church. And today, today we're talking about the fact that we're new and how do you live as a new person the big idea that I want you to come away with today is that when you know who you are you think differently you desire different things and you act differently we're going to take a look in a mirror and we got to be honest when we look in this mirror of God's word here what you see might not be all that pleasant We're going to look at first to how we are apart from Christ. And then we're going to look at how we are in Christ. So let's honestly take a little bit of a look at this. Paul starts off our passage with, Now I say this and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as Gentiles do in the futility of your minds. Just starting at verse 17 right there. Paul begins saying, I insist in this. It'd be one thing if Paul just said, hey, this is all coming from me, but he doesn't. He says, I insist in this in the Lord. He's appealing to the authority of God in this situation. It is that serious. He's trying to get across to the Ephesian Christians that they must not walk as the Gentiles do. They must not continue as that. And when he says walking as the Gentiles, you may be sitting there saying, well, who is a Gentile? Traditionally, a Gentile is a person who's not Jewish, or in this case, someone who is not Christian. In the Old Testament, the word Gentile uh, in the Hebrew was goyim, and in our passage today, which is in the Greek, Paul uses ta ethne, which sounds a lot like ethnicity, doesn't it? The, what, he's really, what he really translates to is the nations. He's thinking of the various nations out there apart from those who are part of Christ. So in other words, we can kind of look at it as these are those who have yet to believe. The unbelievers, as I'll be calling them throughout this time here. He says, we must not walk like them. Well, how does an unbeliever walk? I mean, everybody just puts one foot in front of the other, right? Or do they walk like an Egyptian? Sorry. I don't know. I don't think there's a physical walking that he's talking about here. He's not talking about that. He's talking about a spiritual reality, a lifestyle that essentially is saying, God, I don't want you in my life. I'd rather do what I want to do when I want to do it. I don't need you. I don't care about you. I don't want to to put forward the effort to know you, and I don't care to obey you. Nor will I love the things that you love or do the things you ask me to do. It's that kind of lifestyle that the Ephesian believers would be familiar with as former unbelievers growing up as Gentiles in a Gentile culture. They had many different religions, but did not honor Christ. Maybe you were like me and maybe you were raised in a Christian home. It was an incredible blessing for me. I accepted Jesus when I was really little about every time when they offered the opportunity in VBS. I would be down there praying that Jesus would come into my life. I didn't fully understand what it meant for the longest time. But I I know that when I read through this description, sometimes I would look at myself, the description we're about to get into, and I would say, I don't really think that's me so much because I've been a pretty good boy most of my life. I haven't made some of the terrible decisions that those other wicked sinners have made. Right? But the reality is, guess what? My sin, in God's eyes, is just the same as the wickedest sinner you can imagine. It still bears the same weight and it still bears the same just punishment. That's God's verdict, not mine. Maybe you aren't yet a Christian. Maybe you have yet to trust Him. Maybe uh, as we go through this description that we're about to do, you might have a hard time understanding it Uh, There are parts of it that feel a little bit offensive, but I hope you hear the heart of Paul, and I hope you hear my heart as well, because like a good doctor, the diagnosis is kind of hard to swallow initially, but the medicine that follows it is really good. It is really, really good. So let's look at how Paul paints this kind of dark picture of unbelievers, of us before Christ. Christ. He says that they are stuck in dead-end thinking, calloused hearts, and have unbridled actions. We're going to take those one by one in this description. Because in verse 17b, it says they have dead-end thinking. That they are in the futility of their thinking. When you think of futility, what comes to mind for you? The Borg from Star Trek? Resistance is futile, you will be assimilated. Or maybe you're like me and it's, it's that spinning wheel on your computer when it's frozen and you're just sitting there watching it spin and nothing is happening. Sometimes I even imagine when I think of futility um, on cartoons when they'll x-ray into somebody's head and you'll see a hamster wheel with no hamster. I don't think that's exactly what Paul's talking about. He's not saying that it's so futile that nothing's going on there. They're not smart people. This is not a matter of intelligence or being slow. It's it's the objective. It's the point that they are pursuing in their thinking. It's futile, it's vanity, it's emptiness, it's wasted thinking. And who knows this better than King Solomon? King Solomon, in all his wisdom, was allowed by God to test out all sorts of different things to experiment and see where the fulfillment will come from where meaningfulness will come from and he tried everything read all about it in Ecclesiastes he tried power prestige position possessions pleasure you name it he tried it and at the end of his experiment he said vanity it's all vanity it's wasted it's all chasing after the wind I mean, how foolish does that look in your mind when you think of someone chasing after the wind, trying to catch it in their arms? It's ridiculous, right? That's what he's getting at. These dead-end thinking is a pursuit of something that will never fulfill. You'll always be chasing after it. You'll never catch it. You'll always be missing out on it. Well, how how did they get there? How did these gentiles these unbelievers get to this place where their thinking was dead-ended well if you'll keep your thumb in ephesians and flip over with me to romans chapter 1 it'll also be on the screen verses 19 through 22 romans chapter 1 verses 19 through 22 paul in almost a parallel manner here is saying a very similar thing, but he gives us a little bit of the origin story as to how we got to this place. So follow along with me, if you will. Romans 1, 19 through 22. He says, For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they, the Gentiles, are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, nor gave thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became as fools. That's not a real pretty picture, but you can kind of see how it has gone along. Essentially, God has made himself known all through history. And yet, like little children, so many of us in our natural spiritual state of sin sit there like little kids, fingers in our ears, eyes closed. La, 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 la. I'm not listening to you, God. And we tune him out because we don't like his reality. We would rather take our reality and substitute it for his because ours is just so much more comfortable. I think Mark Twain said it well when he said, it ain't the parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me, it's the parts that I do understand. And I'll say, I'll say it, there are some parts of Scripture that do trouble me. They trouble me because it points out the futility of my thinking, the darkness that has taken root in my heart. It points out things that I'd rather not look at. But that also brings the ring of truth, doesn't it? It proves to me at least that the Bible was not written just by a whole bunch of men together trying to make up a nice story for people to feel good. Clearly, it's true because it points out some stuff that, hey, it's difficult to deal with. It stretches us and makes us think. Not only did our thinking reach this dead end where it could pretty much go no further and it would gain no more ground, not only did it dead end, but our hearts became darkened as well. At least our understanding became darkened, I should say. In, in Romans, it does say that their foolish hearts were darkened. We'll talk about the heart in just a little bit here. What does it mean that their understanding was darkened? It says it in 1 Corinthians um, chapter 2, I believe. Yep, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14, that the person without the Spirit does not accept things that come from the Spirit, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned by the Spirit. You know, there are certain things that we are unable to understand because God has made it So, he has enabled us to comprehend this. And there are some things that we cannot fully comprehend. When we look at the world, we see this lived out that we are darkened in our understanding to how we engage in the world. Back in Romans chapter 1, again, he says that we're flipping it all on our head, right? We're worshiping the created things instead of who? The Creator, who is to be praised, right? And that flips everything on its head. Uh, When I was in college, uh, I was part of a Bible study where uh, one day I I met a witch. Not like I'm bewitched, but she claimed to be a white witch. And we were studying the Gospel of John together, looking at the various I am's of Christ and who he claims to be. And she claimed, um, I think she only came once to this because I think she was a little intimidated by us, But she claimed that she could call on all the elements of nature, the four winds and the various spirits. But not only that, she could call on all the Catholic saints and Jesus and Mary to do her bidding to bless other people. And so I was just absolutely puzzled, and I asked her, why are you turning to these other sources who aren't trustworthy when you could be turning to the one source, Jesus? Instead of going to the created things, go to the creator. Find out who he is. I said, wouldn't, wouldn't you like to know more about the one who has revealed himself to be God throughout time? God overall, as we just sang a little bit earlier, king of kings and lord of lords. That is who he is. Why not go to him? I've met many other people who, they love worshiping in nature, spending out time time out in their deer blind or whatever and saying that they're worshiping god but it's a god that they don't really know they're worshiping more or less the created things instead of the source of it all and because of that their understanding is darkened they don't know the hope that they can have in christ of new life they don't know the joy that comes along with being forgiven and free They don't know the love and belonging that comes from being part of the body of Christ. It's kind of funny when you think about it, that we live in a society that thinks it is so enlightened, and yet our understanding is darkened. John Calvin, in his commentary on Ephesians, says that they are blind even on the most important subjects. Have you noticed that lately in the media? important subjects that you'd think these smart people should agree upon. And yet, there's such a big chasm fixed between them. Such things that you would think that this is the opposite of love and the value that you're espousing and you're pursuing this over here when it just doesn't fit together. It's not a cohesive whole. You see, a big part of the problem is Shown in verse 18, that second half there, that we are separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. We've already talked here in previous messages about the fact that we were excluded from Israel. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, that we are foreigners to the covenants and promises of God without hope and without God in the world. We talked about that, that we were outside before he has brought us in. We were alienated and that's this word separated and the Greek translates very clearly to being alienated. But it wasn't God alienating us so much as us alienating God, turning our backs on him and saying that we don't need him. It's kind of like a tree branch who says, you know what tree, I've got beautiful leaves. I am really strong and full of life. I don't need you. I'm going to jump off from the tree. What happens when they cut himself off from all life, from the flow that comes through the trunk? What happens to that leaf and that branch? It withers and it dies. Friends, that's what sin is, saying that you can do life apart from God when really you're cutting yourself off from the very source of God. And so Paul says this is because of the ignorance that is in them. This ignorance could easily be understood as um, foolishness. Again, it's not a lack of intelligence, right? You can be an intelligent fool. You can be a stupid fool. One way or another, this foolishness is a matter of practically applying truth to our life, of applying the truth of God and understanding that. And this is not an accidental foolishness where you know God was handing out brains and we thought he said trains and so we missed ours it's not that it's not a oops I missed that briefing I didn't hear about this it's a willful ignorance that we choose not to pay attention unless God should wake us up and call us to himself we don't willfully listen to him but this is not a total ignorance God has still put eternity in our hearts. We still have some conception that there's something more to this life out there. And yet we choose ignorance. We choose to ignore it, to be untethered to God's reality. And so not only are our minds affected, do we find ourselves living in dead-end thinking, but we also have calloused hearts. You see it says in um, verse 18, that it's due to, the call- due to the hardening of their hearts. That word hardening in Greek could be also translated as calloused. And I think that's a pretty accurate term when you think about it. How do you get a callous? You get a callous from repeated trauma to a particular area, right? As a guitar player, I have calluses on my fingers that I built up over times and And I've kind of reached a point where sometimes I don't even know if my fingers are on the strings because I have been doing it for so long, the calluses have built up. And sometimes they get hard and dry and painful sometimes. But it's that repeated trauma. And so what repeated trauma is happening in the hearts of a sinner well, it's that constant disappointment that sin brings. It has that great promise, oh, you're going to feel so good, it's going to be great, you're going to love this, it's going gonna, it's gonna to fulfill you, and you're going to, oh, it's going to be good. And then finding out at the end of it, you're like, that was okay, it felt good at the time, but now what? And so you have to keep returning and returning and returning to the sin, trying to get that same last high that you had before. Until you start forming this habit of sin and you start getting this callous on your heart where you no longer respond to God's call in your life. When he pricks your conscience, you don't turn around and say, oh, I I was going the wrong way. I need to turn around. Instead, you become so hard that you cannot receive what God would want to give you. Kind of like clay left out in the sun becomes hard and dry and brittle. Our lives separate from the author and and provider of life, that's the exact same thing that happens. And sin is basically that, saying, God, I choose this over what you provide. Long time ago, in the Old Testament, long, long time ago, before Jesus even came, the prophet Ezekiel said that God wants to give us all a heart transplant. He said it a couple times actually in the book of Ezekiel in 11:19 and 36:26. He says, And I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. You see this heart of flesh is going to be sensitive. It's going to beat along with my heart. Heartbeat, You're going to love the things that I love. Just in case you think um, the translation of callous undersells the hardness, listen to just how hard of hearts they are. In verse 19 it says, Having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality. Having lost all sensitivity. Have you ever lost all sensitivity? Maybe when you lost circulation in a limb and then you're like, I can't feel a thing there. You're not even aware of the pain that is going on anymore. The prophet Jeremiah used a phrase frequently for the Israelites saying that they didn't even know how to blush. It's kind of a weird phrase, isn't it? That they didn't even know how to blush. They didn't even know how to feel ashamed or embarrassed. You know, when, when they were sinning, they're actually proud of it. They would encourage others in it. But they forgot how to blush because their conscience doesn't feel it anymore. They've lost all sensitivity, they've lost the love for God that should be in their hearts, and they become reckless. Hurting people who hurt other people. You see, apart from the knowledge of the grace of God, that's exactly what happens to us. We naturally become harder. We become desensitized towards the pain in our fellow man. We lose sensitivity towards violence. Our feet run quickly into it. And we especially become hard against God. And so we need to ask God to give us a new heart. Otherwise, we will follow that heart and that darkened thinking into unbridled actions. See, it says they have given themselves over to sensuality as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. That's the NIV. Sorry for changing versions on you a little bit there, but I I think it really accurately paints the picture. In, In the ESV, it says they are greedy for all sorts of impurity. But in the NIV, it says that they are in a pursuit with a continual lust for more. They've fully given themselves over to it, choosing it overall and saying, I am fully in to the sensuality. It reminds me of um, back in the day when MTV, I used to watch it a long, long time ago, uh, they had spring break coverage uh, down in Florida and you would see the craziness that ensued The people dancing and drinking and engaging in all sorts of inappropriate behaviors. And I think they edited out a lot of the stuff that was probably happening there as well. You didn't see the full picture of how they fully gave themselves over to this. This is some teenagers making some very bad decisions, giving themselves fully over, but never quite being satisfied. You know, this insatiable lust for sin is kind of like... A bunch of sailors stuck out on a raft in the middle of the sea after their ship has sunk. The sun is beating down hard on them. They are overheating and dehydrating already. And they're so thirsty, but what can we possibly drink? Well, they're surrounded by water, right? And if you start drinking that water, what's going to happen? Oh, you're going to get more thirsty. You're going to want more of it. And before you know it, that salt water. Is going to kill you. It's going to overwhelm your whole body and destroy you. That's the way that sin is. Because the reward for sin is only more sin. And sin always brings with it misery. A perpetual longing for more, not realizing that you can't be fulfilled. I want you to notice something in this dark description of an unbeliever. I want you to notice that their thoughts, And the heart that are very internal parts of who we are that are affected by sin. And those parts then lead to how we act out. Sin is not just an external thing. It's not just the outside stuff that we do. It's not just, I stole something and so I'm a sinner. It's the internal heart condition that led to you doing that. And something must deal with that heart condition. There must be a change as Jesus himself said, you must be born again. You have to have a new start. So how do we get there? We've seen this negative view of this and the insanity of sin. And Paul would be a very poor teacher if he didn't give us some hope. Some form of an alternative for or a remedy for how we can live. Otherwise, he'd only be a critic. Instead, he reminds us of how to walk knowing who we are. How do we do this? Well, it starts with a new way of thinking. Surprise, surprise. Old way of thinking, new way of thinking. In verse 20, it says, You, however, did not come to learn Christ this way. Or it could be say, You did not come to know Christ in this way. How did you come to Christ most likely you heard about him from somebody else. They discipled you. They taught you. And that's really what's interesting is the word learn in our passage in the Greek is which means disciple. So he says, you were not discipled in this way. You did not come to learn about Jesus in this manner. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance to the truth that is in Jesus. Paul not assuming that everybody is in the same place spiritually. He's saying, if indeed you've come to believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then you are different. You've learned this truth. You've learned where to find the truth, and surely you understand the gospel. That God loves us and wants to be with us, but our sin separates us from God, and no amount of good works can bring us back to God, but our Paying the price for our sins, Christ died for us so that everyone who believes in him will have life eternal. And that life eternal can start now and it'll last forever. That's the gospel in a nutshell. It's so good. And you were taught with regard to your former way of life, he says, to put off the old self. To consider yourself, he says in other places, dead to sin. That you no longer have anything to do with that sin anymore because you're dead to it. Because what Jesus did on the cross was in your place. He took your sins on the cross and died for you so that you can be forgiven and free. So that you can be dead to sin. That you no longer have to obey it anymore. You don't have to serve the old master anymore. But you can be new we have to change our way of thinking about that don't we we have to reckon ourselves dead to sin to continually think this way to think i am new in christ that is true of you if you are a believer in him he's also given us new desires Consider the fact that we had old, deceitful desires. It says in verse 22. It says, You were taught with your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted in deceitful desires. That's the NIV. Otherwise, it says, Which is corrupt through deceitful desires. We had these old desires that were tearing us down, destroying us. And. If you've been a Christian for any period of time, you know that there is a war going on within you sometimes between these corrupt desires and between your new nature. There's this battle that says, I love God and I don't want to sin, but I kind of want to sin. I kind of like that. I, I desire this sin above my desire for God. And yet, when we become Christians, we do desire God More. And that's a big difference between a Christian and a non-Christian, friends. A non-Christian doesn't really see a need to change, doesn't desire to make war or do battle with their sinful nature. Only someone who's been made alive by God does. And so he starts giving us these new desires. One of my favorite verses in all of Scripture is uh, Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. I don't know if you ever thought about this, but it's kind of a circular thing. The more you delight in God, the more you desire him. And so when he gives you the desire of your heart, what does he give you? Him. More of him. Isn't that great? The more you delight in the Lord, the more the Lord gives you of him. The more of his presence, his comfort, his love, the more he gives. And he loves to do that. He will not turn away anyone who is seeking him. Anyone who draws near to him, he will draw near too. And that's a good thing. He gives us these new desires and a new attitude. In verse 23 it says, um, we were being corrupted in our old desires, in verse 21, and we are being made new in the attitude of our minds. When he says attitude of our minds, he uses an interesting word for almost the spirit, the inner man, the inner person of who we are. You see, Christians, I I know this to be true. I've seen it time and time again. When you acknowledge that you're a sinner, you have to humble yourself before God And I've seen it in new believers. It's a beautiful thing where they are so excited and so in love with God and they see Him as so desirable. They look at all their other sin and all the other attitudes that they had and and they don't want any part of it anymore. They turn away from it and when they look at their family members, they look on them with a new attitude of love and care. When they look at other believers in the church, they love these people that they didn't think they could before. Their hearts are are transformed, their attitude is different, and they have now a tender attitude towards God. If he should point out anything that needs work, they're like, okay, Lord, whatever you want, I want what you want. That's a heart surrendered to God. And finally, they have a new purpose. In verse 24, it says that we're supposed to put on the new self which is being renewed, being created to be like God in righteousness and holiness. Um, When you think about the purpose that people pursue in life, sometimes we are chasing after all those identities that I mentioned before. We're looking at our job to define us, our possessions or our relationships to define us. But what defines us most is what God says our purpose is. What Jesus came to establish in us. That he came to wrap his robes of righteousness around us so that we could be his righteousness. See what it says there? That we were created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. That's our purpose, to be like God. In true righteousness and holiness. It's kind of funny, isn't it? That ever since Genesis, when Adam and Eve were tempted by that serpent to be like God, they didn't know that God's desire was for them to be like him too. That was his desire and his longing. It's just, in what way? He wanted them to be like him, to accurately reflect him to image him in this world to represent him in holiness and purity think about that your main purpose in this life is to have a healed reconciled relationship with God and to walk in that relationship I've been a Christian for a long time And it still takes me a little bit to remember that, to remember that this is my purpose. And today, every day, I have to choose to walk with Jesus, to walk in this. And I know I'm not walking alone, I know I'm walking with a bunch of believers, that we are together in this. But here's the truth again the big idea is that when you know who you are, you do think differently. You desire different things, and you act differently. When rubber meets road, you may ask, well, how do, I, how do I practically live this out? How do I walk this day by day? Well, I couldn't help but think of that movie, What About Bob? If you've heard of it or seen it, it's pretty funny. It's a Bill Murray movie where he plays a uh, mental patient who has a lot of anxieties. And his counselor encourages him to just take baby steps. Just baby steps. One foot in front of the other, in front of the other, and before you know it, you're out the door sailing. And uh, Paul, I think, does the same thing in the rest of Ephesians. I'm not going to go into it because I think the preacher next week is going to be able to go into that a little bit more, but I just want to highlight some of those examples of some of the things that that change with us. Throughout the rest of Ephesians, he says you no longer lie. You put off lying and you speak the truth in love. You deal rightly with your anger. You don't let it overtake you. You don't let the sun go down on your anger. You no longer steal. You encourage one another and on and on he continues with a definition of what it means to live like a new person you see friends if you are a believer in Christ you are not who you once were that picture that we painted in the beginning doesn't have to be you now it can be a simple thing as even in this time to place your trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That he is the rightful king of your life and that he is the one who is here to rescue He has taken your place in the punishment that your sins deserve on the cross. And if that's a desire that you have in your heart, then I'm going to encourage you to pray with me in just a minute. But if you have trusted Christ, friends, we need prayer because we need help in walking out this identity, don't we? In no longer walking like the Gentiles. So will you pray with me? Jesus, we can't help but look at the wicked position that we were in before. And God, I pray that it breaks our hearts that we aren't hard to what you're saying to us right now, but you'll help us to admit before you that we are sinners in deep need of grace. We cannot do this on our own. I thank you, Jesus, that you took our place on the cross and paid the price for our sins so that we could be in a restored relationship with you. God, let that relationship begin today for those here who have yet to trust you. And God, for those of us who have been walking with you for some time, make it real to us today. Help us to choose to walk with you as new creations. Thank you for your awesome love, Jesus. We love you and we praise you. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you guys for your time.